And now for something completely machinima. And this is the final section of our podcast episode six, and now for something completely machinima. I'm Tracy Harwood, and I'm the lead co-producer for this episode of the show, working with Ricky Grove. Here I'm joined with Ricky. Hello! <laughs> and Damien. Hello there. And Phil. What's happening? So in... The first section this month, we discussed um, game experiences in the metaverse inspired by Captain Grimm's overview of classic World of Warcraft. In the second section, we discussed some of the films that reflected our thoughts on the key issues that arise from making machinima in these expansive environments. Uh, And in this, our final section this month, we're going to explore how these themes play out in today's contemporary machinima world. But before we dive into that, Phil, do you want to let yes, folks it's, uh, know how nice. they can connect uh, with us, please? You go to uh, completelymachinima.com and uh, you click the talk button. It's very nice. You click it and then it shows you the ways to uh, talk to us. Uh, we have the email. You can send the email to us. Uh, you have the uh, text and uh, the voicemail through the, the reverb <laughs> dot d- d- chat. <laughs> and then we have uh, the Discord, but uh, nobody there, so don't do that. Thanks, Phil. Um, right, let's get going then. Um, group discussion then. Firstly, what are the key issues that arise for collaborating uh, in machinima making in Metaverse games? And how does that contrast with traditional machinima filmmaking workflow? Ricky, do you want to start on that one? Sure. I think that unlike uh, an MMO, I think that because it's a completely open world, uh, there's no story structure to hang your other stories on. Um, A lot of times in uh, Second Life, uh, you go to other people's creations and you make a a film out of that, like a documentary. Um, It's a blank slate. But the cool thing about an open world is that you can find little parts of that world and make a movie about it, something that moves you. Uh, I remember Phil and I spent a considerable amount of time in a multiplayer Grand Theft Auto once, and we discovered things that the creators had put in that no way, if you followed the traditional story of it, you would have come across. The only way to come across it is by exploration, by wandering around. So it fulfills that sort of need for a to, to just explore this world, to see what's going on. And I, those memories are actually more vivid in my mind than the actual gameplay of, of a Grand Theft Auto, which to me just seemed to be traditional and, and vice-like and all of that. Um, I, didn't, I didn't care much for the regular game. I think collaboration in a metaverse that you can um, make things and other people can discover those inside of the metaverse. You can have philosophical discussions. You can have discussions about whether something is or something isn't. Um, sci-fi is a great uh, genre because there's stories that are derived from technology that uses as a medium medium the very technology that's being storied. You know, I think that's interesting. And one aspect that I want to discuss while we're um, in, in the course of this uh, uh, recording, is sex inside of Metaverse. Um, I think that's something that has not been discussed very much. And uh, sex machinima, which I think is uh, very active, but you just don't hear much about it because of our puritanical uh, society. And that's my thought. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pick up the baton from there, yeah. That um, <laughs> was... Yeah. I wanted to comment also uh, when Ricky mentioned about the the true metaverse environments that aren't games. Second Life, for example, it's funny that a lot of the a lot of the filmmaking there, the filmmakers still try to self-reference. So they'll end up they'll end up making a movie that basically is understandable, most intelligible to other people who play Second Life, and that's really it. And so they reference a lot of things and, and all that, and I always felt like that's kind of a missed, right. Right. missed opportunity, first of all, but because but, there's the possibilities are endless, but 
I think that puts a lot more pressure on uh, and a lot raises the difficulty quite a bit for storytelling if you can't lean on that existing IP and yet the tendency is to still try to when there's not really a story there it's you know I mean the experience of being in Second Life isn't really a it's not a very compelling story um, it, it it might be entertaining to other people who are also using that world but doesn't really have much much reach beyond that um, <clears throat> yeah as far as uh, as far as uh, sex yeah um, second life was interesting to explore there was a section called Amsterdam with <laughs> uh, virtual uh, human avatar controlled call girls um, <clears throat> and I had a conversation with one once just to try and like what are you doing you know what 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 is this and uh I, I kind of got a lot of copy-paste type responses, which makes me think that they were just hired to, you know, oh, they said this? Okay, put this in. Just operate from a script. That it wasn't like somebody had said, oh, I'm going to go into Second Life. You know what vocation I'm going to choose? It's didn't seem like that was what was going on there. Um, but there was one interesting <laughs> afternoon when there was a period when I ended up getting involved with this group of machinima filmmakers who actually mostly worked in The Sims, um, uh, I would say almost all of them uh, female filmmakers, very talented. Um, and they all discovered Second Life at the same time. We all did. And so we went around a small group of us and exploring these different things. And the next thing you know, we're in this room where, <clears throat> all right, so I've got to be careful here. There was a uh, some kind of contraption that a person could click on to interact and then their avatar would be put on that and have things done to them. And so here I am with this this person who I've spoken to in real life, I know them. Uh, I'm married, she's married, and here I am watching her be violated by this virtual machine. And it was so uncomfortable. It was just so awkward because she's still, oh, we're still talking about, oh, oh yeah, in Seattle, the rain has been really, really, and she's, and I'm just like, you know? <laughs> And finally, I told her, look, can we go do something else? I'm like really uncomfortable with this. It's really strange. It was just so weird. And uh, yeah, and then I got made fun of for being a prude about that. But yeah, it's like, what? What's the big deal? Donkey, 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 donkey. What? Prude. It was interesting. So, but yeah, there's, I mean, the, the internet was that way, I think, with, the first business to really succeed on the internet was, was sex, wasn't it? You know? So, uh, and that's true for almost every, uh, every open platform yeah. like that is, is it'll get used for that. Um, that really doesn't, that's not the kind of collaboration that I think I was being asked to mm -hmm. talk about, but, uh, yeah, I, th I, I don't know that there's, there's not a dramatic difference with how you collaborate in, in metaverse or MMOs. It, it's really, there's a lot more emphasis on team. Uh, like we've we've uh, talked about in the past couple episodes, uh, there's there's still a space I think for a solo creator, but it's it's much much easier and in some ways I think more rewarding to take the effort mm -hmm. and and uh, get a team together uh, to collaborate together. Um, and probably the only the people for whom that's a challenge is people who are a little bit more introverted and maybe that's not their strength or they don't feel like it's their strength and, uh, or they're just used to working alone. But that's, that's where the real strengths of a metaverse platform come about is those people that are there, those other minds that can be put to, to the task and riff on your creativity and uh, all of that. So I don't know that there's a dramatic difference other than those platforms offer a lot more creative freedom than the typical, even heavily modded game does. And Damien?
I'm sure as a sci-fi fan, it's no surprise to people to learn I'm a Doctor Who fan. So when I was exploring Second Life, I bought myself a TARDIS that someone had built and programmed. And one of the options was you could press I the random button. It would take you to a random place anywhere in Second Life. So this is a That's great awesome. way to explore because I don't have to look through the list. I just press that random button and the TARDIS will um, just leave where it is and it will materialize where it should where, where this new place is. Just like it does in the show, it kind of fades in. You get all the sound effects and all that kind of stuff. So I pressed the random button and it did its thing. And my connection wasn't that great. So the new location started loading in slowly as it did back then. I don't know what it's like now, but um, so bits of the walls started appearing. And then these tables started appearing and then couples on the tables started appearing and it was just this <laughs> huge <laughs> I don't know if they're avatars or if they were just animated to look like that. but I, I think some of them probably were real people playing and <laughs> when I realised what was going on I just kind of stared at the screen and I was thinking I'm not sure who's more surprised me or any of these people suddenly had the TARDIS appear in this room where they were doing their thing. <laughs> but I pressed the random button again oh, very great. quick. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Doctor Who? <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, I do remember walking around um, Second Life and exploring... Um, more seriously and did go into one of these areas and <clears throat> I was single and the friend I was going around with she was also single and we decided to experiment with some of the pose balls that we could have and got into some very awkward situations <laughs> um, and uh, I don't really know what else to say about that but I thought well, we're on the subject I'm going to share these two stories but I don't think I can really top that TARDIS one yeah um, um, yeah, but as for a collaboration, I think it's good to have <clears throat> if you've got a group of people who you're friends with and you will enjoy this one virtual environment, why not yeah. um, team up and create a story? And some, um, some virtual environments they do let you do it so, like the two Elite Dangerous videos I covered this week. Um, I believe they were solo filmmakers, I know that the um. The one about the princess had a, a voice actress to, to, to voice the princess, but I don't think she played the game. I think she just did some voiceover. It's just one person um, who's animated it, and it's the same thing for Void. Um, there's no reason that more people couldn't get together and make a film. Some of the others I looked at, they definitely were several people playing because there are several different spaceships doing this whole chase sequence around the space station, which is um, very well done and you have to have, coordinate it very well because you've got one static camera and you have to make sure that these spaceships which are very maneuverable are still in frame while doing all these elaborate maneuvers so they don't crash into each other or into the space station and I think giving people a, a chance to work together and to uh, make a film and test their this, or in this case test their piloting skills to uh, uh, make the film as well I mean it's, it's fun and it's good that you have that because a lot of single player games you don't um, have that experience. I use iClone, which is a very solo experience because you, it's very difficult to upload a project because you, everyone else has to have all the same content, otherwise the scenes don't load. Mm. Um, so I don't have that experience of working with other people to make the actual film. With voice actors, yeah, but that no one else is in the virtual world with me. So I like kind of like the, to explore the idea of working with other people to direct them in the virtual world. Mm. Well, obviously, I don't make machines, so I can't really add to much of what you said there. So on that, let's move on then. Why did people leave machinima and move on to memes and let's plays? I think well, you've probably got two separate I, issues there. Do, yeah. do, do you not? I think, you know, why did people leave is probably a separate thing to why do people make memes and let's plays. This is, this is picking up on some of the comments that Captain Grimm actually made. Um, where where basically he was saying that actually creativity got hard in these uh, metaverse environments. Um, people ran out of ideas, maybe, and uh, memes were a lot easier to do. Actually reflecting some of the points that you guys, I think, were saying. 
memes are a lot right. easier to do. They're just copying other people's stuff and just doing it in a slightly different way. And let's plays are just, you know, speed runs and run throughs of different sorts or another. Um, but why do you think people left Machinima? I think it's partially because of a lack of central community. Um, the loss of talented filmmakers who went on to become professionals who were leaders. I think there's a natural movement of technology to become commercialized. Machinima was in its uh, sort of innocent form and then became commercialized and then collapsed. Um, the whole reason for doing it became turned into a, a money-making scheme and that, and, so you have that collapse happening and it sort of dropped out of a hole, uh, created a big hole for people. And I think people just left and they, they, they weren't being inspired because a good deal of machinima has to do with the community responding to each other. For example, I reread Katie Salen's wonderful uh, essay in the uh, Machinima Reader. I've mentioned it before. Arrested Development, Why Machinima Can't or Shouldn't Grow Up. And in it, she says... Participants use machinima as source material in crafting their online identities. And I think because we lost that central community of people coming together and being inspired, it pushed the community onto satellites, little satellites. And I think those people said, well, you know, it's just easier to do Let's play videos, you know, and then they started to become popular on YouTube. And so somebody says, well, hey, that's popular. So why don't I do that? Because I'll get more people, more views. I mean, Machinima has always got higher views with stunt videos than narrated stories, right? I mean, even from the very beginning, if somebody did some stupid stunt video, there were three times as many views. So I think to answer that question is that it was a kind of a natural evolution of this overhyped mode of making movies. Yeah, I, I think the I think the main so, driver is the ease of of production, um, which is I guess understandable. Um, you know, if you, for someone who I think the let's play and meme type. You know, the remixing equivalent of video content creation. That's what that stuff is, you know. And it's a lot easier to download the, the stem tracks for a, a song and remix yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, It takes talent to do so, but it's a lot less effort than to construct all those sounds and, and come up with the idea for the melody and the lyrics and all that. And I think the same is true in video, too, that... Um, <clears throat> for me, the streaming that I've been doing, it wouldn't have worked for me as something to play around with unless I could come in, sit down, and within about five minutes, turn some things on, start recording, to boom, done. And then because of the unscripted nature of it, I can basically just curb your enthusiasm style, just have a general idea of, okay, these are the things I want to talk about today on the stream, and just get there. You know, and because I've got uh, the the skill or talent or whatever to do that, and not be all uh uh, then I can pull that off. And all these less players have, you know, are, are stuffed to the gills with that kind of talent. You know, where they can just improv. So uh, I think ease of production is just it's very attractive. You know, but I also recognize that. If I've got some intimate narrative tale that I want to tell or some idea that I want to convey, sitting down with OBS and do, doing Twitch, that's not going to get that done. You know, That takes a lot more effort to craft something like what, what Damien does in iClone. That's, it's not that Let's Praise don't have craft. We've talked about this before. They do. It's just different kind. And there's a lot more... There should be a lot more emphasis on the details, um, uh, and there's there's just a there's a different standard, I think, that is pretty widely embraced for what constitutes a good story film, and what constitutes a good let's play, 
they're two very, very different answers, you know, and uh, they both they both require talent. But one of them is just easier to do if you're of a certain personality type. You, you can sit down and do those things. You know, it requires a base of knowledge. You got to know what you're talking about to some degree or know how to play the game. Uh, and you got to most of the time you got to know how to be funny and, and say things in interesting ways. That's 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 the common thread through all these Let's Players. There's certain phrases that they'll reuse that have just resonated with people. There's certain greetings. They sign on the same way. They sign off the same way. There's craft there. It's just not the same kind of craft as when you've got to tell a story um, in a very specific way. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. For me, I, I right. think that's right. part and parcel. That's the whole attraction to those other forms of entertainment is that they're just easier. Hmm. Damien, what's your view on this one? Um, I can basically agree with that. What Phil said, and I can talk about some of my experience with it, is I made four um, basically feature-length Chronicles of Humanity stories. Um, so the first two are about an hour and 20 minutes long. The third one was two hours long, and then the fourth one was roughly about one hour long. Each one of those took a year to make. Um, just just the simple time of collecting all the voice recordings and then having to animate all that footage. I mean, that's feature-length um, productions and so it takes time and um, each of those had a few thousand views which that's not a lot for the amount of work put in. I mean, I'm still really proud of my work and glad I got to make, tell the story I wanted to tell but then it kind of goes back to a little test video I did 14 years ago I'm, I can see it on there the death of Jar Jar I spent two days working on that and even now, it still remains my most popular video I've ever made with <laughs> over half a million views. <laughs> and I thought, I just that was a little test to see if I could do something with this Star Wars game. Mm. I didn't expect anything to happen with it other than it would be just a bit of silly fun. And it's, that's the one that everyone loves, not the ones yeah. I spent years yeah. of my life working on. Mm. So yeah. um, I can see why uh, you know, Let's Play videos are so popular. I mean... You, you can spend an hour playing a game. You can record the whole thing and have it streamed, and that's your video. That's taken an hour, whereas I took years to, to produce an hour of animation um, doing handcrafted. So I can see the appeal of not having to spend so much time to create the same amount of content. Although the content would be very different from um, if I play, if I recorded myself playing a video game yes. for an hour. That's going to be very different from me sitting down and producing an hour worth of story or yeah. whatever I want to tell. Although I have to say that I think good Let's Play videos are more carefully thought no, through than just sitting down and in an hour coming up with something. Yeah. I mean, that guy that used that wonderful Let's Play that you showed us with this uh, Sims yeah. fellow who Grace created these terrible, this, this labyrinth mm -hmm. for his characters, he had to have thought... Yeah, he had to think through that, you know. I think there was time spent on creating it and organizing it. Um, there was more than just your put the recording on and make funny yeah, jokes. By the way, he has yeah. an he has an editor that he pays to edit his videos. So for him, it's probably a three or four hour recording session. Yeah, mm. poor editor. <laughs> it's just Cut it down to 15 minutes with sound effects, yeah. But nonetheless, yeah, you're right. There's, there's more. There's, you got to come up with the idea, you know. It's a bit like the um, the other videos we covered. The, the ones I brought up was the um, the worst city ever. You know that guy yes. that was building the city. He wanted to be the um, yes dystopian mega city, uh, and then I know you guys didn't like it so much. But last week I talked about last month I talked about that flight simulator video um, uh -huh. maybe i didn't choose the right one there to really show off what he does but he basically is sitting down and he cuts out lots of mm -hmm. nothing happening and then just focuses on the funny bits but his whole identity there is <laughs> the pilot who knows exactly what he's doing surrounded by idiots and yes, yeah. um, so my understanding of the way he does that he will record a whole gaming session which could last an hour or two or three and he'll yeah. just trim it up into episodes and then um, do it that way, so, so you get mm. ten minutes videos. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I'm going to focus on the why did they leave bit. Um, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the, the, you know, the way back when stuff. And I think by about 2007, some of those original creators were really fed up also with some of the legal wranglings that were circling around the game-based communities yeah, at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure Phil can probably speak quite eloquently about some of his experiences with that. Um, but maybe in a future show we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. And tied to that, um, we've got this, um, you know, this whole kind of thing around source filmmaker mods, um, which meant you didn't really have to play the game. Um, you could use the models and create your own stories using things like iClone and MovieStorm. And so there was this kind of proliferation of new animation tools that were easier to use, um, which also kind of became a factor. And I think you have to remember that a, a lot of folks in the community were really using the game as a cheap way to create their own 3D CGA-like CGI-like animations rather than um, some of the ones that we've been talking about where they used the games to inspire um, the stories that they wanted to tell. So you had these two kind of very different perspectives. I mean, Hugh was, you know, he often said to me that had he had the choice again, he would never have made Machinima because of the, the legal issues that it, it presented with him. He would have always made it in an animation tool set, but those mm, tool sets mm. just didn't exist for him. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe some of the, the game based storytellers then just ran dry possibly. Um, yeah. You know, some of these worlds are so expansive. Where do you begin as we've kind of been talking about here? Well, you know, I think I think Hugh was wrong in a way because there were tools out when he started in Machinima. Lightwave was a major 3D application that people were using for VFX where you could create models. It's just that the learning curve was so high mm -hmm. that you basically had to spend a year working with it before you became accomplished with it. And I don't think uh, you had the patience yeah. for that. Big time. And the render times as well. Mm. Yes, the render times. Yeah, well, fair points. I mean, and then, you know, as you guys have alluded to, one of the other things was that um, some of the best machinima creators were taken out of the community. They came, they, they kind of became professional creators. So Paul... And never came back. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Paul Marino became the lead cinematic designer for Mass Effect, which was launched, what, two or three years after he joined... Um, to much critical acclaim because of the work that he did on that, because of the skills that he brought to it. And similarly, Leo Lucian Bay, who we talked about in episode one with, with The Beast, was also um, snapped up by, by folks like um, Bioware. And then I think there's this other issue, this whole focus on the money trails, which we've also kind of talked about through, um, through things like the network channel partnership deals that were brokered by... Machinima Inc., as it was taken over um, by the De Beauvoirs. Um, I think that really changed the course of Machinima as we all knew it before, yeah. before yeah. their involvement. It became, I think, the ultimate marketing tool, and it was all about distribution. And, it, and fundamentally, it's Machinima that launched YouTube in 2005. And I think it's really somewhat ironic that when you think back, it was actually YouTube that became the sort of Democles over the head of Machinima Inc. Um, just a couple of years ago. I think that's super ironic, really. Mm, um, yeah, so that right. the, the, the way that whole channel partnership situation spawned a generation of get-rich-quick streamers who cut corners in their creativity uh, by generating memes and focusing on being viral rather than on the production values of storytelling. And I think there's mm -hmm. far more of those than the examples that we've drawn out in the machinima that we're talking about in the in the let's plays that we're demonstrating, which do clearly yeah. have production values associated with them. So, you know, that that get rich quick thing was a big turn off. I know to lots of folks that were part of the um, original community. They just didn't want anything to do with it. Hmm. Um, so I think what's super ironic, of course, is that that one of those kind of key issues that emerged there is that copyrighted content became this increasingly um, you know, folks came, became increasingly subjected to takedowns. Um, and 
uh, you know, on the basis that they kind of violated um, infringements, typically relating to music. So it's the music industry that influenced what what then went on on the, on the internet. And I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen it, but in the news this week, even now, Twitch is also seeing the beginnings of being pursued um, or or the beginnings of the pursuit of the Let's Play folks, Let's Play streamers, oh, wow. for their use of in-game copyrighted music, not so much for takedowns, but for paying um, license fees associated with their use of it in the streaming that they're doing. So I don't wow. think we've by any means seen the end of the issues that um, these money trails are going to um, you know, have for folks um, even producing Let's Plays. Um, with, um, along those lines, Cyberpunk... 2077 has an in-game yeah, so option that's put in deliberately for streamers to disable certain music tracks. Yeah. Sorry, I beat you to it, Phil. Because um, <laughs> they were aware that some streamers might get into trouble if certain music tracks were played by the game. So you can turn those off if you want to, if you're streaming. Mm. That's really interesting, isn't it? I guess a lot more games are probably going to have that kind of thing if they are thinking about the role of the machinima. And let's face it, most games have always been pretty happy to have machinima and machinima creators do their marketing for them. And why not? Because it's cheap, it's low-cost advertising for them. It's even profitable if they can take a a Mm -hmm. stake out of the, the, the creative process along the way. So that will mean more people doing other stuff, um, with machinima. Um, very possibly, I think, I don't think machinima is going away anyone anytime soon, really. No, it's not. So another, especially when you have films like Void being created. Mm, absolutely. Um, so, what to what extent then do you think um, metaverse machinima will help you to create um, memories and communities? I mean, I, I think we've reflected on this a little bit in our discussions here. Um, how do you think that sort of nostalgia and camaraderie? feed into new entries into the game market for Machinima. And I'm thinking here, for example, Fortnite, the Sandbox, Omniverse, perhaps. Do you think there's a role there? I think so, because you get friends playing these games together, and if they created something, then they can always look back at this film that they've created. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how good it is. They've made that this thing, and they had a lot of fun doing it. Well, at least I hope they did. So... Um, so five or ten years in the future, maybe when the game servers have been shut down and you can't play it anymore, they can still watch this video and think, we had a lot of fun making this thing. Uh, this is something we did together. Mm, I think, you know, that's a really good point, Damien. I think, you know, was it in episode two, I think, we talked a lot about some... I think, was it episode two? I can't remember now. We, t- we talked about old machinima anyway, um, and most of our reflections, I think... Um, now have been on nostalgic memories that um, we create with being in these virtual spaces with friends and what went on and you know this you know the way the spaces evolved and what was explored and how narratives were told um, and you know what what went on beyond the beyond the game world in itself and it's I think the stickiness of the of the stories that that actually create communities. And the fact that those stories are shared with others means that the community itself lives on beyond the game. Uh, So maybe what you'll see, and I don't know here, but maybe what we'll see is is the relaunch of a lot of classic versions of games, um, which will become a thing in the future. Um, Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I mean, a Metro 2055 just came out. A Diablo Classic is coming out uh, pretty soon. I think that whole movement towards re-releasing them in upgraded video quality is going to have a whole a range of nostalgic mm. uh, feelings from people having played the game before. Mm. It, but it has to be done. It has to be done well because uh, last year. Uh, Warcraft 3 and Command & Conquer these two games used to be huge rivals it's always discussions but fans arguing Command & Conquer or Warcraft and so Warcraft 3 had a remaster and it's supposed to have all these enhanced graphics and they were going to um, redo all the cutscenes all the in-game cutscenes and so on and it was a disaster because they had promised things that were never going to happen and 
um, made such a mess of it, you couldn't even play the classic version <laughs> without downloading this huge updated version. Even if you did on a plane, you were never going to see it. Mm. And it was so buggy and glitchy that um, Blizzard couldn't fix it, and they just abandoned the entire Warcraft 3 game. So you can't oh, play God. it. And then, <laughs> as a contrast, EA, which you'd expect to be the ones that do it really cheaply and uh, just throw them together, spent they really crafted the Command and Conquer um, remaster. So it's the first game and Red Alert, uh, and they went back and tried to upscale the sort of FMV sequences as best as they could. They went and reanimated all the little two D in-game graphics. And if you press the spacebar, you can automatically uh, instantly switch back to the original graphics if you want to. Um, and they did a fantastic job on their remaster. So I think it's great to see these old classic games being remastered, but they have to be done right because as Blizzard very easily showed, uh, very um, clearly you showed. screw it up. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was worried that that's what's going to happen with the, the Mass Effect Legendary Edition because I'm really fond of those games. But luckily EA, once again, and surprisingly, did it really well. And we've got another excellent remastered game so now you can enjoy it on a modern system you know what though it makes uh, makes machinima even more important really um because of course you know when these games move on even though when you know when they're remastered and represented to you it's actually you know when you think about it machine is the only tangible memory you've got of those original experiences yeah. and, I, and yeah. i'm kind of you know i think it makes me even crosser that you know, what what YouTube and, and Machinima Inc. did in 2019. It's even more of a travesty when you think about it because, you know, they switched off servers uh, and basically in the process destroyed a whole generation's cultural memories, a whole generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. However poor quality most of that content was, that's, you know, that's effectively what they did. And, and frankly, I think yep. it's absolutely deplorable and should mm, never, yeah. never be allowed to happen again. Um, but right. but uh, but of course you know I think our memories are getting shorter and, and our pockets are being picked in many ways. Mm-hmm. I, I guess really I, I suppose that's why I'm I've been kind of curious about this uh, you know this sort of the driving of the cart towards the NFT world that we've been talking about over the last couple of podcasts as well, which which frankly I don't think is the answer, but at least what what it's about is finding some way to recognize the contributions that creators make in the workflows. Um, and, and what NFTs do, um, and also what I was referring to, I think in the film section we were just talking about, is that it kind of documents in a chain, a moment in time. And I, and I think one of the, the great challenges here is how fast time is moving in these game spaces and, and what time actually looks like. Um, and how yes. that environment is vol- evolving, and issues that that probably reflect, um, I suppose, there are issues that, that do reflect the real world and, and real filmmaking. Um, you know, think from little things like, you know, daylight or, a, you know, a day of a year to the, to the effect of aging on characters and the degradation of the environment and so on. Those same right. things are kind of playing out in those those virtual spaces. Um, I guess, you know, I suppose you have to think, can you can you ever go back and replay the same scene in a massively multi-user online environment? You, you probably can never do that. I don't think you can. Um, which is it's just kind of interesting. Even if you script it, you can probably never recreate it. And then, yeah. then I think you've got this whole messy business of, of, you know, what is the role of that environment's owner? Um, what what are they going to do with it? Uh, and and of course you can never really be sure of that. Um, so it's kind of this whole issue of persistence that presents this this greatest challenge for me, I think, in these kind of metaverse environments. And I suppose yeah. one more thing I want to say, really, which is I wanted to reflect a moment on Nvidia's Omniverse and and some of the things that I've been looking at, at what's going on with with this omniverse concept, which is perhaps something a little bit different to what we've been talking about with with metaverse. Now, I think what's interesting here is that NVIDIA are describing uh, 
omniverse as the beginning of the metaverse. Hmm. Although we probably all say that actually isn't really quite true. Um, anyway, what, mm. it, what it's about is connecting different environments and tool sets to develop a creative workflow that crosses um, different platforms. So crosses different platform boundaries. And, and I think clearly what their vision here is, is that it, it's, um, well, you know, in our world, what they're doing is visualizing and what they're describing, automating and simulating different aspects of the world. But, but what their machinima tool set is doing is just the visualizing part. Uh, and that's about creating narratives that they can connect then to physical and, and virtual spaces probably in some sort of conceptual analogy of, of, of a, I suppose, the second life parody of Molotov Alva that we just kind of discussed earlier. But the meaning of Omniverse is, is everything. And, and, it, and it includes the universe, everything that we can see, the multiverse, which is multiple universes, and the metaverse, the virtual universe. So it includes all of these things. And I think... What they're playing with is a really interesting physics analogy and one which alludes to their attempt to be potentially world-dominating should it come to fruition. It's basically the new internet if it, if it comes off. Um, well, and I think, I think we, might, right. we might call it not an internet here. We're probably now talking about something that you might call an exonet because everything is externally yeah. owned, which I think, I think is a really interesting yeah. concept. So it's... It's a metaverse plus, 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 which is really wow. fascinating. And I think Machinima's role is absolutely central in it for all the reasons that we've been talking about. <laughs> um, well, I think you've blown my mind. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Real sorry about that, because I know we're at the end of a really long session. My voice is beginning to go. <clears throat> so one final thing, one final word from you then. What's the future of metaverse machinima uh, and what's the current state of modding for these persistent games? i think modding maybe meets something different in these metaverses because they are inherently moddable you know it's modding traditionally has been kind of outsourcing the crowdsourcing the ability to change the game normally the only the developers would do that and modding is allowing the users some access to part of the code base or to the resources of the game or whatever, and taking it a little bit in their own direction. Well, with with you know with these truly metaverse games, maybe the code base isn't exposed, but but you know modifying that environment is kind of the whole point. So, yeah, what does modding mean? in that context or is modding now just a feature instead of an afterthought or a, a way to, or a hack. That's right. It's not hacking anymore. Right. Is it? If they're or saying, hack. here you go, yeah. you know, we've built this so you can do that. That's right. So I guess that's exciting. Um, but it, it uh, you know, how do you color outside the lines when you're the ones drawing the lines? You know, yeah. So <laughs> you don't. <laughs> it's they have a very tricky balance to play with, allowing people players to have fun and create things, but not in a way that makes it unfair for people who just want to play the game. Yes. Uh, and so they're not being griefed, or yeah. people can't cheat and you know ruin it for the experience for everyone else. Uh, something like what, what um, World of Warcraft. That you can't really mod it beyond um, my understanding is you can do things to the interface so you can have more buttons for different special attacks and all that kind of stuff but you can't actually go in and um, change you know the, what the abilities do or, or create new characters from scratch or anything like that you can just modify the interface and that's it makes sense because they don't want people cheating but then something like Minecraft modding is much more open because you can run your own server and it doesn't matter um <clears throat> you're not cheating because it's your own in personal environment that you can play around with and you can build it and you can modify it, you can change the graphics if you want to uh and so i guess it depends on the, the context of the game and how much uh the developers want to uh, allow freedom for, 
for that modification and also making sure the game's still a safe place to play without people ruining it for yeah and for the for the metaverses that aren't actually right. games then well, the word cheating doesn't doesn't really make any sense but but there still have to be laws so to speak you know to keep people from because people will infringe yeah. on one another you know in the real and virtual worlds they'll do so if if that door is there so yeah and then it's a matter of well whose responsibility is, is it to write and then enforce those laws if the metaverse creator is just saying hey people here you go you know do your thing so even the sandbox game is as mm. open as that is i'm sure that there are law-like structures in place because what what good is a nft-based value system if mm. someone can okay it's not cheating it's stealing you know there has to be something that um, protects that i mean the blockchain itself yeah. offers a certain degree of protection but within the virtual world yeah, yeah that, so that's that's a challenge you know who do you who's Who's the policeman you call when, when someone breaks that law? And I also wonder if some of the impulse to mod, you know, in the past, modders modded because it was fun. It was challenging. It was a way to prove your skill. And it was sort of, you were sort of on the edge of everything. Well, I wonder if some of that impulse to mod has gone to game making like Unity and Unreal, because you yeah. can create mods that you can sell in their marketplace. I mean, wouldn't you rather make money off of something in a game-based atmosphere than just give away your your mod? Many, I think many people feel that way, especially because the work is so hard. Yeah, you got to you got to pay the bills. Well, you have to make right. a living, right? Yeah. 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 You, you know, you, you, and now that possibility to be able to do that on simply writing script for Unity is there. So why write it for Second Life? I vaguely remember one of the Machinery Expos, that, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them, we did end up with a, a griefer yes. turning up and spawning loads of stuff in, in our environment that we'd set up. And I think we had to, we didn't have, the person who owned the environment wasn't there, so we couldn't get them removed until I we remember. managed to cut them down and <laughs> get them kicked out, and they had to change the settings. Didn't they, like, get up on stage yep. yeah. uh, with inappropriately yes. dressed? And, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> eventually we were able to... Uh, <laughs> I remember that. I think I remember that, we, too. Oh, man. The person who uh, owned the land came in and kicked them out and changed the settings so that they couldn't spawn any unwanted objects. <laughs> yeah. I remember it was something that. we had to put up with for a little while. I remember I you. Think the Go, Go ahead. I was going to say, I remember you interviewing me once, Ricky, in Second Life, and some griefer came and sat on my knee. <laughs> I remember I remember that. Oh, it was hugely uncomfortable. thinking, what the hell is going on here? It's just... Uh, I think... I think Second Life is an interesting place and it's still very interesting for people who want to create things and it still has an active community. I mean, it's down, it's about 800,000 people in Second Life, whereas at its peak, it was about 12, 1.2 million. But, you know, a lot of my friends don't do Second Life anymore. Mm -hmm. I love Second Life because I got tired of the griefing and I got tired of the lack of development of technical, mm -hmm. uh, technical problems. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You always had to deal with the same technical mm -hmm. shit every time you went and there was no improvement on it. So I just finally left because I didn't improve it very much. But I think many other places that are metaverses and open world games are going to continue to grow and be very attractive places, not just for machinima filmmakers, but for creative types of all of all kinds. Mm. I think that's a really good note to finish this episode on, Ricky. Thank you very much, all of you, for a really great um, conversation. Um, let me wrap this one up then. Um, what we've done here is uh, discussed issues around the metaverse, um, which actually was inspired by Captain Grimm's machinima film, Did Classic Wow Live Up to Expectations? Um, 
And frankly, it's led us on somewhat of a wild tour around the history and future of Machinima, which certainly I've really enjoyed um, the discussion that we've had. Thanks very Me much too. for that. Me too. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I think next month, uh, Ricky's going to take the lead again. But before we head off into mm-hmm. the sunset this evening, um, Phil, would you like to remind us again of the ways <laughs> that folks can get in touch with us, please? Ba-bum. Yes. Uh, if you go to our website, completelymachinima.com, click the talk link in the menu at the top, and that will show you all the different ways to interact with us. We've got an email address, talk at completelymachinima.com. We've got a mobile number you can send a text message to. We've got voicemail through reverb.chat. Just go there, record a question or a comment, and then email that link to us, and we'll comment on it on the air. And then we've got a Discord server, which is full of crickets (laughs) and could use some content. So we monitor those as well as our Facebook page and our Twitter account. And we would love to hear from you however you would like to get in touch with us. Hey, guys, can I... Can I do a quick thing here at the very end to sort of share my talent as an actor? Please do. Yes. All right, let me let me let me gather myself. Okay. <laughs> Guys, I'm I'm I really want to hear from you. Can't you just send us an email or something? I mean, it, it would be a real big thing to me and Phil and everyone else. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> so, okay, are you guys uh, going to send us something or an email or anything? That's. I think that's our trailer. That's our trailer for this month. I'm sorry, I've lost it. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I wish you a good day and cheerio from me. I'm Tracy Harwood and Ricky Grove. Bye-bye. And Phil Rice. And Damien. See you next time. Take care, everyone. And now for something completely machinable.